Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Before Liam comes to speak to us, I'm going to be reading today um, from Jonah 3. So if you want to turn with me, um, we are going to kick off. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Would you join me in welcoming Liam to the front as he continues our series? Well, thank you. It's great to be with you this morning. And uh, yeah, as Vicky has said, we are in week three of a four-week series looking at the story of Jonah, which will be a familiar story to many of you, I'm sure. But if you are not familiar with it, or if you missed the last couple of weeks, let me give you a quick recap. In week one, Joe kicked us off by looking at the start of Jonah chapter one, in which God calls Jonah, who is a prophet, to go to the city of Nineveh to preach a message asking them to turn away from their evil ways and turn back to God. Now, Nineveh was a notorious city in the ancient world. It was an Assyrian city, and the Ninevites and the Assyrians were known for being violent, bloodthirsty, barbaric people. Not the greatest preaching gig in the world. Uh, But Jonah didn't want to do it, unsurprisingly. I'm not sure I would want to do it. And so he flees on a ship towards Tarshish. Now, Nineveh is in modern-day Iraq, near Mosul, and uh, Tarshish is probably somewhere near Spain. So God says, I want you to go to Mosul, and he goes to Magaluf. It's just like, which is... (laughs) I get that, I get that. So, And we'll explore why he does that a little bit later. But God is not having any of that, so he sends a storm to get Jonah back on track. And the storm is raging, and the people on the ship are worried for their lives, and Jonah says, guys, this is my fault. Uh, so throw me into the river, in the river, <laughs> the sea, um, the the violent raging sea, and it will be stormed by the Lord. And so they do that. They, they throw him over the side of the boat, and it is storm. the storm is just calmed immediately. I don't know what Jonah was thinking in that moment. I imagine he was thinking, this is the end of me, that this is me going to my depths, and so to my death. And so he sinks to the depths of the ocean, but God in his mercy sends a giant fish to gobble him up, end of chapter one. Chapter two, which Johnny Blake looked at last week, is quite different. Chapter two uh, contains Jonah sitting in the belly of this fish for three days, crying out to God, thanking him for mercy, and then just reorienting his heart back towards God, marveling at the miracle of salvation. 
And it ends with this fish sort of vomiting Jonah back up onto the shore, which is a beautiful mental picture to have. And, and Jonah makes this pledge to God. He says, what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord, which brings us to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, which we just heard read, we find what is simultaneously the worst sermon ever preached and yet also the most successful, which is really annoying as someone who preaches. And the sermon actually in the Hebrew is only five words long. But 120,000 people, the entire city, give their lives to God as a result. Now, I can't promise that today's talk will be anywhere near as successful or that it will be anywhere near as short, sorry. Um, but to be fair, Jonah preaches this over and over and over for three days, and I'm not going to do that. So we're in for a treat, I hope. <laughs> we're going to look at two very simple points this morning that emerge from this story. They are the message of salvation and the miracle of salvation. And we're going to start with the message. Verse 3 says this, Jonah arrives in Nineveh, verse 4 rather, and he preaches this message, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. On the face of it, that doesn't seem like the most encouraging sermon in the world. Imagine if Vicky had just invited me up and I stood here and I said, Central London service, you've got just over a month and then God is going to destroy you. <laughs> Maybe the band could come back up. Like that. <laughs> that would not, I would not get asked to preach, but the prayer team would be very busy at the end of the service, I'm, I'm sure. It seems like it's a bit of a strange message. Surely this message can't be from God. And yet, verse 1 says this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So it seems like this message is actually the message that God gave Jonah to proclaim to the Ninevites. Is he being faithful to the message? Well, I would put it to you that Jonah may technically be being faithful to the letter of the message, but not the spirit of the message. And to understand why this is actually a message of salvation, we need to know why God sent Jonah to the Ninevites in the first place. In verse 3, it says, Nineveh was a very large city. That's in the NIV. Actually, large isn't the right translation there. Most translations say a great city. And scholars point out this has less to do with size and more to do with significance. The ESV, the English Standard Version, puts it like this. It was an exceedingly great city to God. And I think that's right. Because in this four-chapter book, this phrase great city appears three times and the other two times is always from God's perspective. This city is great to me. So God seems to think that Nineveh is a significant great city to him, in his opinion. That's not to say that God endorses everything the Ninevites do, not at all. But it tells us that God has plans and purposes for this city that is currently opposed to him. This city matters to God. Why? Because the city is full of people and people matter to God because people are made in God's image. And in spite of its wickedness, God sends a prophet to them because he has plans that he wants to call the city back to. He is not happy just to dust his hands and say, well, fine, we'll just get rid of you. He wants them to come back to him. And so this message, 40 more days and then the city will be overthrown, is not like a judgment with no hope. I think it is an appeal based in love because God wants to restore this city to being the great city he sees them as and intends for them to be. It's like God is saying, you are on a path to destruction, but I don't want that to be the case. Come back to me and in me you will find life. Now, if you think hang on, Liam, are you just changing the message here? I don't think I am, and I will explain why as we go through. But many of us just assume that this Old Testament God is the kind of guy who's like just rubbing his hands with glee, thinking, come on, 40 days, then I get to do what I really love, which is destroying cities. And that is, that is not the case at all. And we know that because Ezekiel 18 says this, 
God says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? God's heart is not for destroying people, but reconciling people to himself. And there is a deliberate ambiguity in the message that Jonah preaches, because the word overthrow or overturn, it can be a very negative word, and it is used for destruction. For example, the overturning or the overthrowing of Sodom and Gomorrah, if you know that story. But it can also be used positively to talk about something being overturned into something good. And there are plenty of examples of this in the Old Testament, two that are particularly interesting. God promises to overturn our mourning and our sorrow into celebration. He also promises to take a curse that is put on Israel and overturn it into a blessing. So I think there's a deliberate ambiguity here because God is essentially saying, you're going to get overturned one way or the other. Ninevites, you are currently on a path to destruction. I don't want that to be your end. I long for you to be overturned into the great city I created you to be. It's a message of salvation. But in the mouth of Jonah, it doesn't come across like that at all. It comes across like a message of judgment with no hope for salvation at all. This is by far the worst sermon that has ever been preached in the history of sermons ever. I don't mean this. I mean, I mean Jonah's one. You watch it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Second worst, maybe. I don't know. But this is the worst sermon ever. Jonah doesn't say how they're going to get overthrown, why they're going to get overthrown. He doesn't even mention the name of the God who sent him. He doesn't say whether that's just a fixed thing they can't do anything about or whether there is a way out. He simply comes along and goes, God's going to destroy you in just over a month. And that is it, which I find curious. Because what was Jonah's pledge at the end of chapter 2? What I avowed, I will make good. I will say salvation belongs to the Lord. He doesn't say anything about salvation. He doesn't say anything about the Lord. He just rocks up and says, God's going to destroy you. (laughs) Off I go. This is not the same message God sent him to proclaim. Jonah is like a doctor who delivers a diagnosis but withholds the cure from the patient. I don't think that he is faithfully representing God here. And why does he do this? I don't want to steal Joel Nazar's thunder too much. He's preaching on chapter four next week, but I'm going to. (laughs) Nothing you do about it. Um, (laughs) Three rows back. I'm safe. And he's very short. (laughs) But we've alluded to it anyway in the last couple of weeks. So I think I'm on safe ground here. When we get to chapter 4, Joel is going to wonderfully show us next week that the reason that Jonah didn't want to go in the first place was because he knew God was going to forgive these people. And so he gets angry with God. He says, I knew you were going to show them mercy, and I didn't want you to. That's why I didn't want to go. You see, Jonah, I think, is willfully misrepresenting something of the heart of God here. And this incomplete message, a message of judgment without the salvation Jonah promised to actually preach, tells us, I think, a little bit more about the preacher than it does the one he's preaching about. I was trying to think how to illustrate this this week, and I was talking to people in the office, and I said to everyone, hey, you remember those things we had as kids, you know, magic milk straws? And everyone was like, no, no. Does anyone know what a magic milk straw is? One, two, three. All right, not many people. So in my office, no one had a clue what I was talking about. None of my colleagues, which is not an uncommon thing for me, but I was right, (laughs) which is also not an uncommon thing for me. But I was just going to talk about it, but I, I couldn't let them get off. I actually hunted these things down. These are magic milk straws. They're pretty disgusting. But the idea is this. You take a pint of milk and you pour it into a cup and you have these straws that are filled with colored flavored beads. And so the same milk goes into each cup and then two lucky people. Uh, we're going to go for Dave because you mocked me earlier. And uh, Jonah, uh, Joel, as a pre- 
peace offering. There you go. You get to drink them, and it's the same milk in each, and yet the flavor is affected by the straw. So, uh, Joel, first of all, take a big sip. Tell us what flavor it is. Hey, it's chocolate. David, what flavor is yours? Disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> it is synthetic chemicals is the, uh, the, uh, the brand name of that one. Strawberry, <laughs> Strawberry, that is the right answer. Well done. He got there eventually. Well done, Dave. Never work with kids, animals, or Dave. It's, <laughs> it's, um, you got it right, and you can enjoy the rest of it. Uh, now, here's the point. Here's the point. Same milk in both cups. The difference is the straw. And the milk tastes differently depending on the straw that it gets filtered through. I think the same is true of the human heart. And when we speak about God, we can be speaking about the very same being. We can even use the very same words from the very same Bible. But the state of our heart affects it to come out a different color, a different flavor as a result. For Jonah, he preaches this message and it comes out purely as a message of judgment without salvation. Why? Because that's his desire. When it goes through the filter of God's heart, it comes out as a message of love because he is calling people back to himself. Do you see? Simple illustration. But the challenge is this. What is the straw of your heart like? And when you talk about God, is the flavor of your message gospel? Is it good news? Is it genuinely representing God? You know, this is a challenge I, I really wrestle with. As someone who speaks about God very publicly today, I will speak about God to hundreds of people in a day, and it matters to me that I represent him well. But I also like to be liked. I like, you couldn't tell it from the way I've conducted this sermon so far and just annoyed a whole load of people, but I like to be liked. And so I face this temptation that the straw of my heart could change the flavor of God that comes out. And I think people often go one way or the other. Either we become a bit like Jonah and we're so consumed with animosity towards people that the message of God, this sort of pure milk, comes out with a taint of judgmentalism. And we all know Christians like that, and it's not pleasant. It is off-putting. It leaves a horrible taste in your mouth. Or we go to the other extreme. We think, oh, well, surely God wouldn't actually want to overthrow this city, so it's fine. God loves everyone, and you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to do anything at all. And so what comes out is either like a doctor saying, here's the problem, but withholding the cure, or someone saying, there's no problem. Don't worry about it. Neither of which accurately represents God. What is the straw of your heart like? I was reading Romans 2 the other day, and it just really challenged me, and I think it's relevant to this. And Paul says this, You have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? That's quite dense. Let me try and unpack it a little bit. Paul says that God is a judge. He does judge. As much as we would like to do away with that concept sometimes, Paul says he does. But God is in a unique position of judging. He is the only one who is able to judge based on truth. See, God understands that there is a problem in this world, and the Bible describes that problem as sin. I don't know what comes to mind for you when you think of the idea of sin, but Paul goes on in the next chapter to unpack it a bit further. Essentially, he argues that, that we were designed for relationship with our Creator and to find fullness of life in that. But chapter 3, verse 23, he says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
It doesn't say, as I had read that for years, that we fall short of the laws of God or the rules of God or the standards of God, although those things are true. It says what? We fall short of the glory of God. That is, he made us for something great. He made us to be something glorious in relationship with him. And all of us have got off the track of our creator's original intention and have got us onto a path that leads not to life and glory, but to our unraveling and death. And sin, essentially, in the whole Bible's teaching, is that which takes us away from the Creator's intention for our lives. And as a result, we end up on this path towards death where we adopt attitudes and habits and ways of thinking and acting that are destructive rather than positive. And sin, in the case of Nineveh, I mean, it's obvious what was their problem. It was arrogance leading to violence and to bloodshed. And I look at that and I think, well, I'm nothing like the Ninevites, but... If I'm really honest and I look at my heart, I know there is stuff there that's not dissimilar. There is arrogance and there is pride and there is thinking negative thoughts towards people. There are motivations I have that I wish I didn't have. There are things I say and think and do in private that I would be so ashamed if you knew in public that I did them because that is the nature of sin. And rather than being empowering, it actually takes us away from the glory for which we were intended. But Paul says, God's judgment is based on truth. He sees this. He sees the trajectory of our lives. And he alone is able to say, if you carry on on this path, you are going to get overthrown. Because he is all-seeing, he is all-knowing, he is pure in his mind and in his character. He is uncompromised. So when he makes a judgment, he is right because it's based on truth. But, says Paul, you as human beings, you are not able to put yourself in the same place of God. If you try and do that, you fall into one of two traps. Either you become judgmental. If you point the finger at others and try and judge them and say, well, I don't like the way you're living, your view is not based on truth. Why? Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us is as pure and perfect and clearly minded as God is. So when you point the finger at others, as the saying says, three fingers point back at you. You cannot do that. But the equal and opposite danger is not that we're judgmental, but that we're presumptuous that we say it doesn't really matter. God's a God of mercy. Let's do away with this judgment thing. We don't have to worry about that. It was the German poet uh, Heinrich Heine who apparently said on his deathbed, having never followed God all his life, oh, God will forgive me. That's his job. And I think many of us can have that attitude. Paul says that is to presume on the kindness of God. And he says the kindness of God doesn't leave us where we are. It calls us to repentance. Notice it doesn't say the anger of God or the judgment of God. It says the kindness of God. Because he is fundamentally at heart kind and he longs to not leave us where we are in either of those camps, but to draw us to himself. So the challenge is this. Does the straw of your heart align with God's heart? Because if not, what will come out will be a flavor that is completely different from the flavor of God's gospel. We need to align our hearts with God's. With God, his message to the Ninevites, I think, is the same as it is to us. It's a message of salvation. It's essentially this, look, I have created you for glory. I have plans and purposes for you. I've made you to be great in my sight, in relationship with me. And the way you are living right now breaks my heart because you are walking away from the life I have on offer. And if you carry down this path, I see with my truth and with my knowledge, I know that will lead to your unraveling and to destruction and to death. You will be overthrown. But that's not my heart for you, says God. I warn you as a wake-up call in order to lead you by my kindness back to repentance, back on the path to life. 
You see, God loves to restore people, to turn us around and reconcile him to, herself, to himself so that we will be overturned and made new. The curse turned into a blessing. We can be the people he created us to be. And that message of God to Nineveh is the same message to you today. And if you are exploring questions of faith, maybe you have thought of God primarily as judge or some kind of just grandfatherly figure in the sky who doesn't care about us. Actually, there's a middle ground. God cares and he knows and he knows what is going on in your life and he calls you to turn around and to get onto the path that leads to life because he loves you and he wants relationship with you. And if you've been exploring questions of faith for a while and you're thinking, I would love to get to know this God, today can be that day. And I would explain how and I'll give you a chance to pray if you would like to at the end of this sermon. How do we get to know and enjoy this message of salvation? Verse 5 says, The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. They hear this message and we see two things. This is miracle of salvation. Two things happen. One, faith. And two, repentance. First of all, faith. It says they believed God, which is Old Testament shorthand for faith. Abraham believed God. He had faith and it was counted to him as righteousness. God saw the faith, not his actions, just the faith, the belief. And he said, on the basis of that, I'm going to make a mighty nation out of you. These people believe God. And then what do they do? They repent. That is, they turn away from their old life and their old trajectory and they get on to the path that leads to life. And the way they do it is slightly unusual. I mean, they kind of do anything they can to get right with God. They're like, I'll stop eating. I'll wear sackcloth. I'll like, take off my royal robe and sit in dust, which is unusual, right? But this is what they're doing. They're just doing anything that they can to get right with God because their hearts are genuinely crying out for a relationship with him. And so the king, he takes off his clothes and his royal robes and he sits in the dust and he says, you, you can't even feed your animals until God relents, which is unusual. Like no one told them to do this. Jonah didn't come in and go, God's angry with you, but to get right with him, starve your pets. Like he didn't say anything. That's not the message today. If you want to follow Jesus today, your pets can survive. That's fine. But like, Jonah doesn't tell him anything. He doesn't tell them anything about whether it's even possible to get right with God. And yet these people just cry out. Why? Because something is moving in their heart that Jonah didn't even tell them about. I, see, I think the Spirit of God has got hold of their hearts. And there is genuine repentance, genuine faith. And they are crying out, God, we will do anything to get right with you. Faith and repentance. And it sweeps through a whole city. Everyone crying out and fasting. And then when the word reaches the king, the king issues this city-wide decree, I want you all to fast and to pray, which is what they're doing already, which is weird. But you know what leaders are like? They always want it to think like it's their idea. You know, that's just, I think that's part of the point. But the main point is this. Everyone from the greatest to the least has to cry out to God. Why? Because God cares about cities, but he also cares about individuals' hearts. And so he wants everyone to know you are not too powerful that you don't have to turn to me and you're not too lowly that you're out of the reach of my love. I want everyone from the greatest to the least to turn to me and live. And this miracle of salvation breaks out in the city. The king calls people to call urgently on God and they do and it's just beautiful, but it's a miracle. That this violent, bloodthirsty nation who has destroyed many other cities, many other whole armies, would hear the preaching of one very, very average preacher and just go, fine, we'll put down our weapons. Like, that doesn't happen. And yet they humble themselves. Why? I think because the Spirit of God has got to them and it resonates in their hearts. And so they bow the knee to the living God. They desperately cry out to him. And as a result, the whole city is saved. It's incredible. 
I think God loves to answer prayers like that. I don't know about you. I, I often pray about the little things in my life, and I think, oh, I don't know if God will even give me that. God wants to transform cities, nations. He loves to do it. I was reading the other day that this year is the um, 100th uh, anniversary of the end of World War I, which I already knew that bit. Uh, but what I didn't know is that many people attribute the end of that war to something that happened just a few months before. On the 4th of August, 1918, it was the fourth anniversary of the start of World War I. And with no end in sight, and in fact, having almost lost the war in the March of that year, King George V called the whole nation to a day of corporate prayer for the end of that war. And so right up and down the country, churches held meetings where they would pray and they would fast and they would cry out, God, would you end this war? Would you save our nation? It's estimated that somewhere in the region of 20,000 people gathered in Hyde Park to pray on that one day, 4th of August, 1918. 100 days later, the war ended. Now, I don't know if it ended because of prayer. That is not measurable. I can't present evidence that that's the case. But having read stories like Jonah, and in fact many stories in the Bible and through church history, I know that God answers the prayers of people who cry out for a whole city. Why? Because he loves cities and he loves the people in them. And when the people cry out to him, God loves to show mercy, to show his heart. There is a miracle of salvation that sweeps through the city, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But there's also something tragic about this. You see, their prayers, they show a genuine heart cry for God to intervene, but they're actually kind of speculative. The king says, cry out, cry out desperately to him. Do these things like put yourself in sackcloth and ashes and don't feed your animals. And who knows? Maybe God will relent. Who knows? Jonah had given them no way of knowing, no hope, no assurance at all. And so they just cry out, if there is a God, like, please just take these things that we're doing and, and consider them enough. Who knows? And we'll get to the end of the 40 days and then I guess we'll know. You can know. You can know that God hears your prayer and that it's not about your deeds and it's not about speculation. You can know that God wants you to cry out and find mercy and find life in him. And the reason you can know is this. Because 800 years after Jonah, another preacher, another prophet came. His name was Jesus Christ, and he was the Son of God. And he never once deviated from the plan that God had for his life. He never once fell short of the glory for which he was brought to earth. He never once fell into the temptation of sin. He never once misrepresented God. He fully represented God as the one who is God in flesh. And he preached a message which took him to the Nineveh of his day, Rome, the most barbaric nation of the ancient world. And they put him to death on a cross. And in that moment, Jesus showed way more courage and way more of the heart of God than Jonah could because he showed what it genuinely looks like to love your enemies and to put your life in their hands. And he died on a cross and he descended to the dead. And three days later, he came out of the grave alive again with a message that has the power to change the world. And in Matthew 12, Jesus says that his own actions in his death and resurrection are somehow the fulfillment of what Jonah was all about. He is the sign of Jonah. Because Jonah spent three days in the belly of a whale and came forth with an inadequate message that somehow miraculously turned around 120,000 people. Jesus came out of the grave of the earth, the heart of the earth, with a message that has the power to transform the world. 
And if you know that you want to get right with God, if you know that you are missing out on the life for the full for which he has created you, you don't have to look at your deeds and go, I hope I've done enough because it's not about your deeds. It's about believing God. It's about faith. It's about trusting in his death and resurrection on your behalf and then choosing to turn away from your own path for your life, which leads to destruction, and turn to his path for life, which leads to eternal relationship with him. And you can know. You can know relationship with God, forgiveness from sins, the promise of eternal life. Why? Because as Paul concludes in Romans, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you're here as someone who is exploring questions of faith, you take what time you need to do that. I understand there are big questions. It's not a snap decision you make. It's a big decision to follow God. But if you are here at a point today where you've been exploring for a while and you think, I've never done that. Maybe I've always just assumed that God judges me and holds me at arm's length or that he's just sort of so nice and cuddly (laughs) that I don't have to do anything. He'll just forgive me anyway. Actually, I want to tell you, no, there is life available, but you do have to respond. And it's not about doing things. It's about saying, Jesus, I trust you. I give my life to you and I turn around to follow your path to life. And if you would like to do that, today can be that day. And in about three minutes' time, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray a prayer if you would like. And so my suggestion is this. I'm going to talk to the Christians in the room for a little bit and, uh, and challenge them a bit. So you've got three minutes just to examine your heart and to say, God, is today, today the day? And to make that decision. And then I'll lead you in a prayer if you would like that. Maybe the band can come back up. I want to end with this. I, man, I, I found this talk such a hard talk to write. <laughs> um, Partly because when I open it up and I started reading it, sometimes the first thing that comes to mind when I know I'm going to preach on a passage is, ah, here are all the questions I need to answer, or here are three nice points that all begin with the same letter, or something like that, or or, here's the application. The first thing that came to mind for me with this was none of those things. The first thing that came to mind as I read this literally out loud was a prayer. God, you got to do this again. That was the first thing that came to mind for me. God, you got to do this again. A half-hearted preacher preaches an inadequate sermon for three days and an entire city, 120,000 people give their hearts to God in nothing short of a miracle. God, you've got to do that again, was my heart's cry. I long to see that in my lifetime. I long to see that in this city. I know that God cares about this city. And 120,000 people in Nineveh is nothing compared to the 8 million who live in London, but I'd take 120,000 giving their hearts to God in a day. <laughs> I'd take that. I read the stories of God doing these things and I cry out, why are these relegated to the pages of history? Actually, they're not not that distant. There are many accounts of God moving in nations and in cities right across the world in what can only be described as revival. That is, he stirs people's hearts to draw them back to himself in miraculous ways. And I read those stories and I've been reading those stories the last two months and just praying, God, would you do that in my day? So when I knew I was going to preach on this passage, that's what comes out. God, I want to see that. Do it again. Send your spirit and save our city. And I've been praying for the last two months. I know others on the staff have as well. I haven't prayed for revival most of my life, but just the last two months praying, I kind of almost, I sort of think God could do it. (laughs) I sort of think he might do it. Why? Why would he not? He loves cities. He loves London. And when I read the stories of the way that God has changed whole nations, there is no one-size-fits-all formula for how you prepare your heart for it, but there are key elements. And guess what they are? The repentance and faith. And it starts with the church. 
It starts with the church saying, God, I want to get my heart right. I want to align it with yours so that I am faithfully representing you, that I'm not judging and I'm not holding out a wishy-washy, pointless gospel. I want to be bold in genuinely exclaiming your love and I want to say salvation belongs to the Lord and I want to get rid of anything that is stopping me from living life to the full. It's repentance. And it starts with Christians. It's not something you do on day one of your faith and you never do again. It's about coming back to God and saying, you have my heart. I give it to you. The second thing is faith. Trusting God, you've said that you've done it in the past. You said that you'll do it. Do it again. I believe your promise and I cry out. And repentance and faith are both expressed through prayer. And there is no revival that has started that I have read about that hasn't had prayer at its foundation. The reason is this, because God promises to Chronicles 7, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, repentance and faith, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. If you want to see this city changed, all of it, if you want to see the cultural, social and spiritual renewal of this city, it starts by us saying, God, you have my heart and I'm going to cry out in faith for revival. So I'm going to invite you to do that. And every revival that I have read about starts with faith and starts with prayer. And sometimes that's a nation praying, and sometimes it's two old grannies in a basement praying for a decade. I don't have a platform to call the nation to pray, but I do have a platform today to call you to pray and to invite you to pray. Lord God, I pray for this city. Come, Holy Spirit. I have heard the stories about how you have intervened in the past and drawn cities and nations to yourself, and I am jealous. I am jealous for them to happen in our day and in our city. Would you do it again? Thank you that you love this city and that it is great in your sight that you have plans to prosper it and to use it for your glory. I pray for every one of the eight million hearts in this city. Would you call them back to yourself, to the glory for which you created them? Lord, would you pour out your spirit on us and pour out your spirit on this city and would you start a revival here in our day and may it begin in us. We repent of the ways our hearts have tainted your good news and we ask, Lord, would you take our hearts and fill us with your spirit and use us for your glory. I pray that we will be full of your power and your presence. Keep our hearts aligned with yours and do wonders in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.